So this morning we come to the end of our Lent series and we think about taking up our cross as we walk through Matthew 16. But let's begin, as we often should or always should, by setting our context. In the previous couple of chapters in Matthew, Jesus has heard about the death of John the Baptist. He has fed 5,000. He has been questioned by the Pharisees and Sadducees on the behaviour of the disciples. And then at the end of chapter 15, Matthew has recorded the feeding of the 4,000 men, plus women and children, with seven loaves and a few fish. We are then told that Jesus has travelled by boat and headed towards Magadan, which is, was on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. And now chapter 16 begins. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And if we don't know by now, I'm just going to pause and say that testing Jesus or God, for that matter, never ends well. But Jesus does respond. In verse two, he replies, when the evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. We've all heard that saying, haven't we? Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Jesus acknowledges the wisdom of that knowledge. He is not saying don't live by it or say it, but he uses it to highlight the inability of the Pharisees and Sadducees to see the signs of the times, the stuff right under their noses. And he doesn't stop there. Verse four, he continues, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. I think that's a biblical mic drop moment whether it's Matthew or Jesus that did the mic drop, I don't know. But the sign of Jonah, let's look at that. What does that mean? For anyone who doesn't know, Jonah is an Old Testament book about an Old Testament prophet called Jonah. He didn't really want to take the message he was given by God of hope and redemption to his enemies in Nineveh. But he was called to do so by God. It's the story with one big storm, a big fish and a reluctant prophet with a lot of soul searching. But what would the sign of Jonah mean in terms of Jesus? Some writers suggest that it has to do with Jonah spending three days in the tomb. With Jesus spending three days in the tomb as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. But Luke writes in his gospel in chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. That's the same. But Luke includes in verse 30, for as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will be the son of man to this generation. So also will the son of man be to this generation. 
Jesus is saying he is the sign. He is the witness to the world, to the generation for a change of heart, a heart of repentance. In fact, if you look at Jonah in the next week or so, there's a lot of echoes of Jesus and the Easter story that we know within its two pages in most Bibles. Anyway, so Jesus has left the Pharisees and goes with the disciples. Now, imagine with me, Jesus and the disciples are in the boat. It's the end of a long day. And they're all quite tired and they're out and they've been in the sun and they're hot and they're dusty. Now from verse five, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take the bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Can you imagine the nudging and finger pointing going on between the disciples? It's your fault. You were meant to pack it. No, I was getting the fish. You were meant to bring the bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. Why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember five loaves for 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you do not understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, so not the bread yeast, which ferments and grows, creating bubbles of air and inflated, soft, fluffy dough. But behavior yeast, the stuff that grows and inflates an ego. Yeast, or to give it its bread makers yeast, its proper name, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. There we are, some Latin for you this morning. Apparently, there are 20 billion yeast cells, 20 billion yeast cells in one gram of cake yeast. And if you can see them, the numbers on the image are one micrometer apart. Well, how big's a micrometer, you say? In one centimeter, there are 10,000 micrometers. So yeast is tiny, but powerful stuff. As yeast absorbs the sugars in a bread mix or a cake mix, the process produces carbon dioxide gas, basically. These are released by the yeast cells into the surrounded, surrounding liquid dough. And in bread making, the carbon dioxide forms the bubbles and air pockets. Now, yeast can be useless because it's past its date and it doesn't grow. And you spend ages putting effort into something and you get no growth. You get a hard biscuity loaf. But also, if you use too much yeast, if you've been over generous with it, if it's been in a place that's too warm or you've left a live yeast growing, 
you know that in the right conditions, it can grow unhelpfully. It inflates, it puffs up in a loaf if it's not distributed properly. It can create distortion and misshaped bread. Why am I talking about this? Because it can bring deception. And a product that in the end, while it looks good on the outside, is disappointing on the inside. And this in people is what Jesus is talking about. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the stuff that grows and creates unhelpful distortions on the inside. Okay, enough about yeast and bread. Let's go back to Matthew and some more sedate conversation. The group have now travelled north to Caesarea and we're continuing verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some people say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others say Jeremiah, one of the or one of the prophets. Now, the phrase the son of man will have held meaning for the disciples. Because they would know the number of times that it, the son of man is mentioned through the Old Testament, through the Jewish text that they had been taught. But they also know that Jesus refers to himself in this way by now, because it's recorded in Matthew before this point. Then Jesus turns the question from who do the people say the son of man is to but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus celebrates Simon, uh, Peter's answer and then orders the disciples not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah. Now, in the next section, Jesus is going to go on to predict his death. But we've still got in Matthew's gospel some time until the events of his death unfold. So Jesus predicts it now in Matthew 16. He predicts it again in Matthew 17 a third time in Matthew 20, and not until Matthew 26 do we start to have the recount of the last days. So let's continue, but this time from verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Now, to me, he said that quite clearly. But Peter, the same Peter who has just, we've just read, has identified Jesus as the Messiah. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turns and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in concern in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What has just happened? Peter knew, knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter knows that he is speaking from God's voice too, from God's heart. And yet he's turned around and arguing with him and telling him it's not going to happen. What's happened is Peter has put his own heart, his own desires, 
before the desires of God. He has fallen into the yeast of the Pharisees. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life or their soul will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This again is in reflected in Luke's gospel too. We've got to take up our cross. We know that's the theme of this morning, but what does it mean? Does it mean a literal crucifixion for each of us? No. We probably know the phrase, though, take up my cross. We might hear it or even use it ourselves in speech. Working with them or dealing with this, it's, it's a cross I have to bear. Maybe a present suffering or illness is, feels like a cross, a burden that we bear. Or maybe a weight or responsibility of, of caring for something or someone. These are real situations that we face and they do take effort and time. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Taking up our cross is making a choice to give up our life and follow Christ. There are examples of that through the Gospels, of being prepared to suffer for our faith. Perhaps even losing friends or family. Letting go of our own interests and replacing them with God's priorities. I don't mean giving up craft or playing a sport, but our priorities, maybe our desire to be right. Our desire for money or status or power or gifts and replacing those things with God's priorities. What does God want for our lives? And taking up our cross is a daily thing, putting Jesus first each day and following him. So let's look back at taking up our cross in the context of the verse in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But not only that, must deny themselves. So that's the letting go of self. Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So maybe it shouldn't have been in my list. They must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If we're more worried about the stuff of life, the possessions, the power, the privilege, we will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Now, I'd love for a moment to take you from Matthew 16 back into Matthew 15. I won't read too much of it, but I want to look at the comments made back to the Pharisees and Sadducees there. 
because I'm going to be quick because we want to finish sometime before lunch, I imagine. Um, the question from the Pharisees and Sadducees was about the way the disciples were approaching eating without the ceremonial hand washing and preparation before coming to food. The Pharisees and Sadducees are angry because the rules aren't being followed. They're not being sacred. They're not treating things properly. And so Jesus in the next verses is talking to them. These people who are questioning his disciples behavior. And so this is Matthew 15, beginning in verse seven. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And verse 17 says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And it's these that defile them. So the yeast of the Pharisees is and Sadducees is not even just the teaching, but the words that are coming out of their mouth in total and the actions of the, the whole being of them as people. We saw the ones in the cartoon earlier in the little video, the bitterness that just came out of their mouths. Because that attitude from them was not of God. It's like the tiniest, tiniest cell of yeast has grown and multiplied and ruined the whole loaf. So taking up our cross as individuals and as a church is to know that Christ took up the cross for us. Is to be prepared to give up our life, our stuff, to follow Christ every day in everything not just in our home and then don't worry about it at work or out on the high street or in the car every day in everything. It's about being prepared to suffer for our faith. Not because we're obnoxious or we think we're right and we have all the answers or because through our own behaviour we've upset or offended people. But if we are persecuted for Christ, we should be prepared to suffer for our faith. We should be ready to let go of our interests and replacing them with God's priorities. And we should try and avoid the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the inflated egos of pride or arrogance and thinking we know the answers of anger or idolatry, of putting anything before God. And we take up our cross through being mindful of what is coming out of our mouths and how that might demonstrate the state of our hearts. And that's not to, to keep quiet in public or with certain people and then be OK somewhere else and be able to go. oh, bleh. Wherever we speak, what's coming out reflects God, reflects the state of our hearts. And we should focus on putting Jesus first every day in everything. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unswerving love for us. We thank you for taking up the cross, for Jesus taking up the cross, for taking all of our stuff upon him. We thank you for the time that we've had this morning to gather, to study your word, to sing praises to you, to see one another. As we leave here and go into the rest of today and on into the week ahead, we bring before you our pride, our desire to cling on to all we have. And we ask you to help us let our hands and our hearts fall empty of our priorities so that we can each take up our cross. Lord Jesus, we ask that you save us from suffering in your name. Save us from suffering from sickness and persecution. But we know that in truly following you, we must be prepared to lose ourselves for you. We seek to know your priorities in our hearts. To put you first each day. And to know your word in our lives. Finally, would you, Holy Spirit, help us, help to guide us away from the yeast of the Pharisees and towards a place where our hearts and mouths can truly reflect God and his love for the world around us. Open the eyes of our hearts as we seek to change for you. And so that we can see you and know you. And Father God, in us, through us, and maybe even despite us, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. <laughs>